Turn with me, John chapter 1. This because uh, we've already made it to verse 14, so we're doing pretty good here. This is the Word of God, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Years ago, I saw a movie. It was Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. You all remember that? I think it was a Disney movie. And the father was an inventor, and he invented this machine that would shrink things, and the kids got a hold of it, and they shouldn't have been playing with it, right? And they shrunk themselves. And they were the size of insects, and they, they made friends with an ant, and they rode around on this ant. And, and in my simple kind of thinking, it, it reminds me of the Incarnation, that this ant couldn't have known you know, man unless they would have shrunk themselves, and they couldn't have known the ant unless they were as small as an ant. Because if I were to go up to an anthill and try to talk to a bunch of ants, especially in the morning, my breath might kill them, right? From bad breath. Or some people say that I'm loud. I don't understand that. Um, I'm not that loud, but my loud voice might make these ants tremble, right? And fall to the ground or run and hide from me. Or if I happen to drool a little bit, I might kill 20 of them. It would be a terrifying thing for a little tiny ant to come into a human's presence. Thus, we needed the incarnation of Christ. Look at verse 14. And the Word became flesh. Last week we talked about what, who was the Word. The Word was Jesus Christ. And the first phrase of verse 14 is a wonderful way of expressing the incarnation. That Jesus took on flesh and became a man. That Jesus was God, and we talked about this last week, that Jesus was God before the beginning of time and became a man in the incarnation. Remember we talked about Arius saying he was like substance with the Father? But truly, he was the same substance with the Father. Begotten, not made. Being of one substance with the Father, by whom what? All things were made. Jesus Christ is the infinite God-man. A hundred percent God and a hundred percent man. And the idea of him taking on flesh is putting on skin. It's not like what the book of Romans talks about when it describes sinful flesh. This is not sinful flesh. No Jesus was a human being, yet without sin, as a result of the virgin birth. Hebrews 4.16 says this, 
For we do not have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things yet without sin. Jesus Christ is the infinite God-man who took on flesh yet without sin. And listen to this. He did it out of love for you and for me. Now, another way of expressing the incarnation, theologians use the word humiliation. The time that Christ came to this earth, during that whole time, they call it the period of his humiliation. And then when he went back to heaven, it's his glorification. And 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, talks about this humiliation. It says this, For you know the grace of of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Think of that. Where did Christ come from? He came from heaven. Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the King of glory, came to live in our midst. And you know, when I think about that, I think he should have come and he should have lived in a castle and he should have been born to royalty, right? It makes me think of uh, Prince Andrew and Harry. Are those the two sons of Diana? I wanted to check with Denise, but I didn't. (laughs) Harry, right? Come on, everybody, right? Okay, okay, good. Got it right. Andrew and Prince Harry, of course, are royalty. They weren't born on the streets, were they? They weren't born in a homeless shelter. They were born probably in the best hospitals, with the best physicians in all of England. And you know, from their birth till this present day, they have lived in the lap of luxury. They've lived in the finest of homes, They've dined on the finest of foods. They've driven the finest of cars. And you know, when I think of Christ, I think he should have had that. But he didn't. The Father's plan for the Son was to live as a common man. And the Father's plan for the Son was to be born in a stable. And the Father's plan, even more humbling than that, was to be born and to lie in a manger, which is a fancy term for an animal's feeding trough. Did you know that? It makes me think of when my kids were little, and they would drop their pacifier. Well, when when Jillian, our first, dropped her pacifier, what did we do with it? We'd pick it up, and we'd put it under the hot water, and we'd make sure it was all clean and all that, right? Well, then after a few months of that, we'd pick it up and go like this, you know. <laughs> and by the time you get to your second child, I don't know, and we, we don't have three, but I was a third child, so I hate to see what went in my mouth, right? But Jesus, the King of kings, the King of glory was in a feeding trough. His humiliation, 
He did that out of love for you and me. And Joe, Joe made a comment, and, 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 and it's all by grace. You know, he came to us. We didn't go to him. He came to us. Amazing love for him to do that. Verse 14 says, and he dwelt among us, right? And I love, I love this because it also can be called, he pitched his tent among us. Pitched his tent. Along with our tents. You know, and, it, and if you ever think of a tent, that's not a great thing to live in, isn't it? It's a temporary living place. And that's what Christ did. He came and he lived temporarily right in our midst. And he did that for us. And you know, God has been pitching his tent amongst us ever since the Israelites left Egypt. Do you remember how God led the people in the wilderness? With a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. How he parted the Red Sea so that they could walk through it on dry land. And how the Egyptian army that was following them, wanting to destroy them, was destroyed by God with the collapsing of the Red Sea. Then Moses took the people of God to the, the base of Mount Sinai to meet their God. And in Exodus, turn there with me, Exodus 19, verse 10. Moses prepares the people to meet their God. Listen to this. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not go up to the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him. Whether man or animal, he shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they go up to the mountain." After Moses had gone down to the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and he washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, Prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and, and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in the fire. The smoke billowed up, for it was like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpets grew louder and louder. And then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. 
The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so that they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up on Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. Do you hear how many times it's repeated? He's going to break out against you? Don't go past this point or you will die? The people were filled with fear and trembling. It's a fearful thing to stand in the presence of a holy God. Now, some of you might be thinking, you know what? I wished I was there. You know, you wish you could have seen the parting of the Red Sea, the manna in the wilderness, water coming from the rock when Moses tapped it, the Shekinah glory coming down on Mount Sinai. But remember this, that the majority of the people that saw this died in unbelief. God's plan of revelation reveals the best way for us to know God the Father is through the incarnation of God the Son. Because it's a very difficult thing for a sinful man, even a justified man, to stand before the glory of God the Father and even God the Son. Turn with me to Isaiah 6, 1 through 5. Let me give you one more example of that in the Old Testament. It says, In the year of King Uzziah, verse 1 of of chapter 6, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is for me, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I, have li- I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see what he did? He saw the holiness of his God. He saw the Lord of glory, and he saw his sinfulness. He saw his sinfulness. And then in Matthew 17, turn there with me. Matthew 17, we see the transfiguration. In verse 1, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brothers, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, 
and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. Think of that word terrified. When do you get terrified? You know, I think of when I'm in a plane at 40,000 feet. I just watched the movie Sully last night. That would be terrifying. To be in a plane and crash in the water, right? Um, That's what I think of when I think of terrified. They fell on the ground, and even more terrifying than crashing in a plane is standing before a holy God, right? But I want you to notice another thing here in Matthew 17. Jesus was transfigured before them. He he peeled back his skin a little bit. He showed his glory a little bit to the disciples. And what does Peter do? Does he fall on his face? No. (laughs) He keeps yapping. (laughs) Hey, Lord, should we build a tabernacle for everybody? You know? He keeps talking. But he, he is quiet when God the Father says, listen, he falls to the ground. Let me give you one more example. Turn with me to Revelation 1. Revelation 1. And this is the glorified Christ. Verse 15, 115. Or go to 14. It says, his head and his hair. This is Christ in heaven. It says, his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like the flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when I saw him, this is John speaking, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a what? A dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I had the keys of death and Hades. So we see here that the humiliation of Christ enabled his disciples to stand in the presence of God. And let me explain why. Why could they stand in the presence of Christ even? How could a justified sinner stand in the presence of God? How did the incarnation make it possible for them to stand in the presence of Christ? Remember, when Christ came to this earth, he was 
God. He was sinless. He was perfect. He didn't give up his deity when he came to this earth. So how was it possible for the disciples to stand before him without fear, even when he peeled back a little of his skin to show his glory? Well, the answer to that question can be found in the term again, his humiliation. And look at, with me at Philippians 2, and that will explain his humiliation. Turn with me to Philippians 2. And it says this, in Philippians 2, verse 5, it says, Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being found in the likeness of man, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Notice, notice in verse 7, it says, He emptied himself. What does that mean? Well, some theologians would say, He emptied himself of his deity. When he came to this earth, he emptied himself of his deity. We talked about that last week. That's what Arius believed. He said he was like God, but he wasn't God. He was the creation of God. But that's not what this passage is saying. To empty himself means that he withheld his glory. He withheld all of his glory before his disciples. To stand in the presence of God without fear. And not only did they stand in his presence without fear, but it says, go back to John 1, verse 14, but it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. What does that mean? Well, not only did they see him with their eyes, understand this, they not only saw him with their eyes for three years while he was on this earth, but they understood him with their hearts. To see his glory meant for three years they studied him. They considered him. They thought about who he was. And the more they studied him, the more they came to the conclusion that you know, this, this is more than a man, right? And we talked about this last week in John 14, 8. Philip came to Jesus and said, Show us the Father! And Jesus said, Have you been with me this long and you don't understand that the Father's in me and I'm in the Father? And the Father's working through me and whatever I do shows the Father? So how do we see the Father working through the Son? Well, one example is in John chapter 2. When Jesus loves his neighbors at the wedding of Canaan. You remember the story. They run out of wine at a wedding. Can you imagine 
you being the parents of your child and you're throwing a wedding and how embarrassing it would be to be throwing this wedding and run out of wine? You know what wine symbolizes? Joy. And so it would be like saying there's no joy in this event that God has ordained and God has established. So Christ saves the day by turning water into wine. Thus he loves his neighbor and he reveals his glory to his disciples. And this work of Christ reveals the Father's heart in how he rejoices in the celebration of marriage and in the institution which he established. And in John 2, we see Jesus confronting with righteous indignation the hypocrisy and the greed of the money changers who were making his father's house into a place of business. They were probably selling and exchanging animals and money at an exorbitant rate. Jesus does what his father would do by driving out these greedy businessmen out of the temple. He throws their tables over in righteous anger. When we see the actions of Christ, we can see the heart of the Father in his anger at idolatry, in his place of worship. In Matthew 8.23, we see the storm on the Sea of Galilee, and we see the Father's love for his children in their time of need. We see the humanity of Christ also in that he's sleeping in the boat, during this storm at sea. And finally, when the wind and the waves get so great that the disciples think they're going to drown, they're going to die, they go wake him up and they say, don't you care that we're perishing? And what does Jesus do? He stands up and he rebukes the wind and the waves and it stops. And is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. The works of Christ point to the works of his Father. We've already discussed why it's important that Jesus was God. But today we need to discuss why did he have to become man? You know, he was 100% God and 100% man. Why did he have to be man? Well, the answer, the first answer to that question is because God can't die. God can't die. Only man can die, right? Jesus came to die for the sins of his people. That's what it says in Matthew 1.21. And all of scriptures and all of history point to this most important event of all times. From Abel's offering to the Jewish sacrificial system, Jesus was the Lamb of God which came to take away the sins of the world. And the ultimate plan of the incarnation was for Jesus to have a body so that he could die in our place. Well, the second reason 
for the incarnation was so that God could understand our sufferings. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. It says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through his death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through, through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives helps to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Jesus came as a human so that he could experience the sufferings of life, so that he could be a faithful high priest who knows and feels the pain that we go through. Just think of the suffering that Christ went through his entire life. Just think of the one experience of him being in the wilderness with Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. The devil was basically offering Jesus a way to be the ruler of the universe without facing the cross. But he didn't give in, not for one second, because of his great love for us. Now some of you may be thinking, 100% God, 100% man, so was his suffering really like ours? Did he really feel pain like ours? And I would say, yes, he did. Christ suffered on the cross. It was real suffering. When he was whipped, when the thorns were jammed on his head, when the nails pierced his hands, when he pushed up from the cross so he wouldn't suffocate, all of his suffering was real. He was 100% man. And when he died, he said it was finished, which meant redemption is complete. And he took on his body our sins, and he took on his body all of God's wrath so that we would not suffer in our bodies for an eternity in hell. And listen to this. While this was all taking place, while he was suffering on the cross, the Father did not intervene. He gave his Son a body so his Son could give his body for us. God could have stopped the cross by sending legions of angels to stop everything. But he didn't do it. He did not intervene. And in closing, um, 
there's an Andy Griffith episode where Opie is being bullied by a kid that was taking his lunch money. And Barney wants to intervene. You know Barney with the bullet in his pocket. He wants to probably pull out the bullet, put it in his gun, and go arrest this kid and throw him in the jail with Otis. But Andy looks at him, and, and you know how Andy looks at Barney all the time and shakes his head. He goes, Barney, we don't need to intervene because Opie needs to learn how to stand up to bullies. So the next day, he hands Opie his lunch money. He'd already talked to him about what to do. And his son goes to school. And throughout the whole day, Barney keeps coming up to Andy going, we need to go help him. We need to go help him. And Andy keeps shaking his head. Nope, not going to do it. Not going to intervene. So Opie gets home. He gets back to the sheriff's office. And he walks in with this big grin on his face. And a big shiner on his eye. And he looks at his dad. And I love it. He says, Pa, it didn't hurt. It didn't hurt. You know, Jesus felt the pain of the cross, both physically and spiritually. But he faced the pain of the cross with great joy, knowing what he was about to accomplish. The redemption of all of his people. The redemption of his church. The redemption of you and me. Let's pray together. Thank you for the grace of the gospel that you willingly gave up your riches in heaven to come to live in our midst, to come and pitch your tent with us, to come to live in the midst of sinners. Lord, we can never thank you enough for doing that for us. Lord, we thank you for the grace of the gospel and how we, we that were poor are now rich because we have the forgiveness of sins, because we have a righteousness that's not our own that was put to our record, that we are perfect and holy and forgiven because of your work on the cross. Lord, we praise you for that. Help us to be faithful at living for you out of love for what you've done for us. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.